You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. I'm delighted today to be joined by world-renowned historian, uh, author of 17 books, winner of several impressive accolades, including the International Emmy for Best Documentary in 2009, and is here today to discuss his latest book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Al Ferguson, welcome to the Freedom Pact. It's a pleasure to be with you. So before we start, I just want to give a quick addendum that this is Niall Ferguson and not Neil Ferguson before I have to change my address and move countries. Um, but anyway, I just want to start and say... It's even um, worse than that, actually, because <laughs> I, I pronounce my name Neil, too. The, oh, it's right. the Irish who say Niall, <laughs> and the Scots uh, say Neil. It's the same name as N-E-I-L, <laughs> but I think we need to be absolutely clear. I'm not the epidemiologist <laughs> at Imperial College whose famous paper in mid-March 2020 led to the lockdowns, or at least provided a rationale for the lockdowns. I'm a historian based at Stanford in, in the United States, so uh, spelt differently, sounds the same. Yes, I think it was uh, important to clarify that distinction there. So before we jump into your book, I figured that a great place to start would be that today, Dominic Cummins, the Specsavers ambassador, he gave a pretty chilling account of uh, the government's handling of the UK pandemic um, through the lens, I guess, of kind of your book. What are your thoughts on Mr. Comment, Mr. Cummins' comments and that situation? Well, full disclosure, I, I know Dominic Cummings. I've known him for quite a few years. And uh, I uh, read before his testimony today, and we're speaking on... Wednesday, May the 26th, his very long Twitter thread, which in some ways flagged up what he was going to say. Mm. And I've tried to keep track of his, his testimony as it's, as it's been happening. I agree with a lot of, uh, of what he's saying. And it aligns with my brief page and a half on what went wrong in the UK quite closely, uh, though not exactly. I think the critical point is right that the UK government as a whole failed and it failed because it acted too slowly. Uh, it dithered through January and February and into March. And he describes in, in great detail the nature of that dithering. Uh, it had a plan that was more or less useless and it only realized too late that there needed to be drastic action. We come to call this drastic action lockdowns, a bunch of measures to stop the spread of the virus leading to an unacceptably high number of deaths. So I broadly think that what Cummings is telling us is the first pretty reliable insider account of what went wrong. And one reason I think it's credible is that he doesn't spare himself. He's been clear that he made mistakes. He's not trying to claim that he was somehow uh, the, the voice in the wilderness. He acknowledges his part in this failure. I think the other thing that's credible about it is that he doesn't seek to pin it all on, on Boris Johnson or even on Matt Hancock, the health secretary. I mean, he has some very harsh words about them both. And some of the revelations from today's testimony were, I think, pretty shocking. But my impression, based on the Twitter thread as well as the testimony, is that he's offering a critique of the entire government response, including, and this is a really important point, the civil service and the public health bureaucracy, because it's not as if it was just Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock who screwed this up. So I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure he's going to get a lot of very hostile pushback because, of course, from Boris Johnson's point of view, this is a major attack on his competence. Uh, he's going to get pushback from the media because 
Dominic Cummings has, has made a point of alienating journalists for years. And he's obviously going to uh, get some continued pushback from Whitehall or SW1, as he likes to call uh, the Whitehall Westminster complex. So I can expect, I would expect some quite negative press coverage. But I have to say that as an historian who's tried to figure out what exactly went wrong last year, a lot of this rings true. One thing that I would love to ask you since we're kind of on this topic um, is that we know now in regards to COVID-19 that it's very ageist by nature. And um, knowing that the UK government had a very lax policy towards care homes, for instance, where we know that they more or less didn't test them uh, and it kind of wiped through those. It was mass elderly deaths. Um, but at the same time, whilst we had this, everyone else was locked up. So in that sense, was the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic kind of the worst of both worlds? Well, I think it's, it's important to put this in some kind of broad perspective, and that's part of the point of doom. It, it's a history of disasters generally, and it also is a kind of global history of the pandemic up, up to the point at which I had to kind of hit send for the last time. So the story in the final chapters is, is really a story up until, I guess, the end of October last year. A lot of governments failed to protect the elderly in care homes. It, this was a cause of a really significant proportion of deaths in many European countries, as well as in many American states. So this was certainly not a unique mistake. Uh, and what seems to have happened is that in many countries, and systems, and it didn't really matter if you had a universal healthcare system or not, there was a tendency to prioritize hospitals and try to make sure that there was capacity to deal with critically ill people. And that meant uh, that the inclination was to send people back to care homes or to care homes if they didn't appear to be critically ill. And that meant that uh, there was a significant flow of people. This ha also happened in New York State, as well as in England and Wales, from uh, hospitals to care homes. And there was far too little done to uh, check if they were infectious or not. There were also insufficient checks on uh, the people working at care homes uh, who often work at multiple care homes. And a lot of spread happened right. that way. Now, this reveals a broad failure, which was the failure of testing. One reason one can make these criticisms is that they didn't happen everywhere. These mistakes did not happen everywhere. They did not happen in Taiwan. They did not happen in South Korea. They didn't really happen in, in New Zealand or Australia to the same extent. Why was that? Because if you take Taiwan, which has in many ways been the gold standard, though it's had its recent problems, what they did right was very quickly to ramp up testing capacity. And that was one of the many things that the UK and the US failed to do. So they, they were able to find out who had the virus. Remember, you couldn't tell. You still can't tell. A lot of infectious people, totally asymptomatic. That's what makes this virus so tricky. But in Taiwan and, and South Korea, they really prioritized getting testing capability up and running. And we didn't do that uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic. And, and that, I think, is one of the reasons that nobody really realized that infected people were going into care homes. Now, it's important to remember that it was obvious from pretty early on that the virus was ageist because the Chinese data were already coming out in January and February showing that most of the people who were becoming seriously ill and dying were 65 and over. And the older you got, the worse it was. So that was definitely something that should have influenced policy more than it did uh, in the spring of last year. I would love to, um, there's plenty there I would love to, to pick up on, but I guess I would just like to just kind of circle back. So as I mentioned, you've released this book, uh, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. I believe it may be a 17th book, 17th, 18th Yes, book. I think that's right, actually, though I slightly stopped counting, but that does ring true. <laughs> <laughs> Very impressive, I, I, I would like to say. Uh, so I guess let's, if we just kind of go back to the book, what was kind of the central thesis of the book? What's the kind of message you'd like to convey? Well, the idea was to write a general history of disaster because above all else, we, we lacked perspective. And I think we still do. Mm. Now, some people would say, well, why didn't you wait till it was over? 
And my answer to that is, well, first of all, only a part of the book, the last three chapters, is really concerned with the 2020-2021 pandemic. Secondly, how are you going to know when it's over? Yeah, I mean, it's not like the end of a war when one side uh, surrenders or peace is negotiated. Pandemics can go on and on and on. The, the Black Death hit London in 1348. It was still hitting London in 1665. Influenza dominated uh, the kind of pandemic league table in the 20th century. It kept coming back for more. And I think COVID might be a bit like that in the sense that there are going to be new variants. They will perhaps be vaccine evading, or at least they'll reduce vaccine efficacy. We could be playing whack-a-mole with COVID for years. So why wait? The issue, and Dominic Cummings' testimony illustrates this, is we need to learn really, really urgently what we got wrong, because it's not like we're going to get this nice long break before the next disaster. So the motivation was to try to provide not only a general history, of disaster, but some takeaways, some, some useful insights into what disasters have in common and how they can better be managed. The subtitles are clue to the argument, the politics of catastrophe. The argument is that nearly all disasters are in some sense man-made, even though we call some of them natural and some of them man-made. In reality, even a volcanic eruption will only kill a significant number of people if people have decided to build cities or towns near the volcano. If, they, uh, if there's an earthquake, it, it really will be a function of, of preparedness, of architectural standards and so forth, whether a lot of people die or not. So every disaster has a kind of political character to it. This was an idea that I didn't come up with uh, all by myself. Amartya Sen made this argument many, many years ago about famines. The argument was that famines were not really natural disasters, that the really big famines in history have a political dimension to them. And I think that's right. But I don't think it's peculiar to famines. I think all disasters have this character. And I think COVID illustrates this point. After all, Taiwan and the UK were dealing with the same virus, and yet the outcomes were dramatically different. They still have, I think it's in the low 30s, the total death toll in Taiwan right now. And we're looking at uh, 128,000 or thereabouts in, in the UK. So that there's no way you can explain that by just referring us back to nature. That was about the kind of policy errors that Dominic Cummings has been talking about. So I thought if I could write a book that would bring all the disasters in history together under one roof, we might be able to discern some patterns and maybe identify the do's and don'ts in a disaster. And it's not a book about pandemics only. Let me emphasize that. Uh, we're all a bit pandemic out at this point. It's a book that also talks about wars, which are the other really big killer in history. And it's a book that looks at earthquakes. Uh, it looks at famines. Uh, and it looks at some disasters that have made the headlines without necessarily killing a huge number of people, like the Titanic, which everybody has heard of because of the movie, uh, or the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster, which only killed the seven crew on board, but had a huge impact on public consciousness in the United States in the 1980s. So this is a general history of disaster, with, which I think offers some usable and, and useful insights into what it is that you should do to try to mitigate disaster uh, and what you should definitely not do uh, if, you, if you want to avoid excess mortality. I really appreciate that. And I would just like to pick up on a few things which you said. But they, so as you just said, they, you talk about how there are natural disasters and there are these man-made disasters. And often these things can interlap. Give the instance, but there of a kind of a volcano may erupt naturally. Uh, but for instance, it could have been government policy to have built a series of houses within the vicinity of the, the volcano. Um, so I would just have to just kind of bring this back to coronavirus. You mentioned Taiwan earlier. In your view, who, who got the response to the pandemic very right and who got it very wrong? Well, nobody gets an A because Taiwan got it very right now at the beginning, mm. uh, but has actually stumbled in the last few weeks because they got a little overconfident. The things to get right were the, the testing, the contact tracing, and the effective isolation of anybody infected or suspected of being infected. And, and, and Taiwan did that, and so did South Korea. And New Zealand kind of copied 
Taiwan and there were a bunch of other countries that in, in their different ways used this playbook. And that meant that they really effectively early on got a handle on the virus and stopped it spreading. The problem is that if you did that in 2020, uh, the incentive to get vaccination right has been much less powerful. So Taiwan has stumbled in the last few weeks because uh, they had a kind of chink in their armor, which was that the quarantines of flight crew uh, from international flights were not that strict. There was an outbreak in a hotel where pilots and, and, uh, and crew were staying. And then they realized, uh-oh, we've not vaccinated anybody. I mean, they barely vaccinated anybody at all. Yeah, yeah. And also, we don't have the testing capacity because we've kind of taken our eye off the ball. I interviewed Audrey Tang, uh, the digital minister in Taiwan, who's really one of the heroes of my story, uh, last week and said, are you, are you victims of your own success? And she said, yeah, because we, we just didn't emphasize vaccination because we thought we had this done. So nobody's really aced this. Many countries that did shockingly badly last year, like the UK, did really well with vaccination. Uh, the U.S. has done pretty well with vaccination. And so there's a kind of strange uh, inversion here. If you if you really screwed up last year, your incentive to get vaccination right was really, really big. If you nailed it last year, it was like, ah, we don't need vaccination. Actually, everybody needs vaccination because the virus is a shapeshifter and it's going to find a way through even the Taiwanese armor. I do think that there's a general lesson that hasn't been fully learned particularly because of the way the media have covered the crisis. The general lesson is that in a disaster, whether it's a public health disaster or some other kind, it's not necessarily the prime minister or the president who is the key figure. Ultimately, the buck stops with the man or woman at the top. But I think we attribute too much importance to those individuals. Uh, of course, they want us to. Both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump wanted to be centres of attention, and Dominic Cummings made that point today. But in truth, when you're dealing with a new coronavirus, it's not really the prime minister's job to sit and read the latest reports from China and figure out the uh, dispersion factor and the appropriate mitigation measures. He has people whose job that is. And in both the US and the UK, and many European countries too, the officials whose job was public health and pandemic preparedness have performed very poorly. And there's no getting away from that. I, I, I have respect for the epidemiologists, including the other Neil Ferguson, but you have to ask what on earth they were doing in January and February and early March. It was obvious to me, and I'm just a historian, that there was a pandemic underway by about the second or third week of January. And that the rational thing at that point was as far as possible to limit travel from China and then to, as far as possible to find out who in the country already had the disease. And I found myself in, in Washington in mid-February and there was still a general air of denial at that point. And, and by that time, it was too late. The virus was probably already in every state. and It was similar in the UK. So we have to ask ourselves, why the experts, the public health bureaucrats, whose one job this is, were apparently asleep at the wheel. And it's even more mystifying, and this is a really important point the book makes, because on paper they were prepared. There were pandemic preparedness plans. And in 2019, a major global survey, which was published by the Economist Intelligence Unit, said the best prepared countries for a public health emergency in the world are the United States, number one, the United Kingdom, number two. Now, that turned out to be about as wrong as it gets, because... <laughs> If there's one league table we at least came close to leading at the worst of the pandemic, it was the countries with the highest excess mortality. And we've been beaten out to the sort of top spots by some really disastrous cases like Peru and, and Ecuador. But in the end, those that were expected to do really well did really badly. And we need to understand why that was, because if we just tell ourselves, and I hear this a lot, Boris is an idiot, that's why it happened. Trump was a moron. That's why we had excess mortality. If we tell ourselves that all you have to do is switch the person at the top, if we tell ourselves the story that, oh, if only Joe Biden had got the job a year early, 
we wouldn't have had excess mortality. If only Corbyn had been prime minister, we wouldn't have had excess mortality. If you believe those fairy stories, you aren't learning the right lesson because the true point of failure was not at the top. Those guys screwed up in all kinds of ways, no question. Trump in particular, multiple mistakes. But those were not the mistakes that really explain the excess mortality. The mistakes were made at the level of the public health bureaucrats. They screwed up testing. They didn't even try contact tracing in the US. The UK finally got around to that. And at no point have we been effective at isolating infected people. We, we still aren't because we don't really take seriously some of the very basic rules of, of plague management, which we've actually known since the Middle Ages. And, and the kind of rule number one, even if you don't understand the first thing about why you're having the bubonic plague, is you do try to stop people who might have the disease from just kind of coming to your town. We, we've forgotten that most elementary rule of, of plague control. Very, very compelling. And, and I agree with almost everything that you said there. Um, I would love to, to ask you, because in the book you talk about how there is a lot of fearfulness, there's a lot of uncertainty in uh, modern times, which can lead to overreactions. They can lead to extreme responses. Now, what's interesting about that is that's something which perhaps past generations, um, they may not have been thrown by, so let's say COVID-19 in a way that this generation may not have been. They didn't have Twitter to find out what was going on in all these different places. Um, so I found this to be a paradox because we are living longer than ever. We're healthier than ever. GDP is, you know, all, all the global statistics is as good as, as it's ever been. What is causing us to be so fearful and so uncertain right now? I'm not sure fearful is quite the right word because there are some people who are excessively fearful and there are some people who are insufficiently fearful. Uh, and so there, there are the, uh, the, the kind of panickers and there are the, uh, there are the dreamers, the people who are complacent. Right. So the real question is, why are we so confused? Why do we find it so difficult to assess risk in a rational way um, and act early when there is a, an uncertain risk uh, that might turn out to be really bad? I mean, the big blunder was that in January, we should have acted like it was the Black Death or that it could be the 1918 influenza. We didn't know, but we knew enough to know that it might be. But instead of acting early, we kind of kicked the can down the road. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One is the nature of bureaucracy itself. A characteristic feature of government in the developed world is that it has got bigger and more complicated over time. It employs more people than it did in, say, 1957. Uh, it costs more money relative to gross domestic product than it did in the 1950s. And yet, it seems to be less effective in execution. We've got an infrastructure program, which is going to cost trillions of dollars, currently under discussion in the United States. But I can tell you, whatever price tag it ends up having, it will be far less effective than the Eisenhower administration's interstate highway program. Because the federal government's just got much worse at doing stuff than it used to be. This is actually a Dom Cummings point. He, he points out that the Manhattan Project was a triumph of the US federal government. And that's true. Uh, they, they built the atomic bomb in wartime conditions extremely swiftly. They more or less maintained secrecy and the bomb was delivered and ended the war against Japan in 1945. An amazing achievement. The federal government today can barely run airport security checks in a competent way. Its last attempts at large-scale investment, which were the Obama stimulus bill uh, back in 2009-2010, were pathetic in their outcomes. And so we have a general problem, which is that bureaucracy is not very effective, no matter what you ask it to do. No matter what disaster you ask it to manage, it will not manage it very well. So that's part of the problem. And I think it's, it's a discernible deterioration in government competence. I'm not the only person to make this argument. Francis Fukuyama has been making it in his recent books. Mark Andreessen, the Silicon Valley uh, super investor, made the same argument in a piece he published last year. So this, I think, is, is not Neil Ferguson going out on a limb. 
The second point is the internet. As you rightly said, when the pandemic struck in 1957, the Asian flu, which was comparable in its size to COVID globally, there was a relatively straightforward public communications operation. You had uh, a finite number of uh, news agencies, newspapers, radio stations, and actually very few television uh, stations. Today, because of the internet, we have a completely different ecosystem for transmitting news. And people underestimate how much it's changed in the sense that a lot of people get their news from things like Facebook or Twitter or Google or YouTube, which is part of Google, not realizing that the information is being curated in order to maximize their engagement with the platform and make you susceptible to the ads, which is how they make the money. If the goal of your platform is to get eyeballs stuck on screens long enough to see ads, you're not really gonna be that concerned about, about truth. You're gonna be interested in sensation. That's why the internet is a giant engine for distributing fake news and extreme views. Now, if you have, as happened last year, a new virus that has uncertain uh, threats, uh, risks to health, the last thing you really need is a bunch of crazy stories that tell you there's a cure which consists of eating garlic uh, <laughs> or that you mustn't get a vaccine because it'll inject a mi microchip into your bloodstream so that Bill Gates can monitor your movements or whatever it is. I mean, this kind of stuff is out there in such a vast quantity that it really is mind-blowing. And what blows the mind even more is how susceptible people are to the fake news and to the conspiracy theories. Really large percentages of people buy this stuff. And I tried to make the argument in my last book, The Square and the Tower, that that's a much bigger problem than we want to deal with. And that's why we haven't fixed it, even though it was obviously a problem in 2016, if not, if not earlier. So I think those are the reasons we kind of have got into this mess. First, the bureaucracy is just quite bad at dealing with its, with its job. Very good at producing 36-page pandemic preparedness plans, but just don't expect the plans to work. <laughs> we, the public, are in a state of total confusion. We don't know what to believe, but we're very attracted to the more sensational theories. Or oh, if I take hydroxychloroquine, I'll be totally fine. An immense number of people believe that. There was no scientific basis for it at all, it turned out. That seems to me to be the combination punch that creates both a governmental fail and public confusion. One thing I think that really staggered me personally about the current pandemic was uh, kind of how politicized it became. And I would imagine, or I would posit anyway, that I imagine that social media really added gasoline to the fire of those things. What did you make of the politicization of the pandemic and does it worry you? It's a huge problem, especially in the United States, because I think here more even in the, than in the UK, every public health issue became a partisan issue. Mm. Now, this is not just Jack Dorsey's fault. This is not just Twitter. Donald Trump consciously decided to make mask wearing a political issue by saying publicly he would not follow the advice of public health officials to wear a mask. And I, I think of that as one of the moments when public health and, and party politics in an election year became inseparably bound up with one another. One of Trump's great failings as a leader was that he, he put himself front and center of the US response and then used his bully pulpit on a daily basis to spread misinformation and disinformation. There's no getting away from that. And it, it certainly added to the body count, though just how much is a little hard to say. So I think you have to attribute some of this to, to conscious decisions by leaders to make issues that didn't need to be political, political. In the 1950s, you don't see this. There aren't democratic views of the Asian flu and Republican views. There is not a controversy about vaccination. Everybody's just glad that the US gets a vaccine together faster than anybody else. Right. So I think we've seen a kind of increased 
politicization of public health issues uh, in in relatively recent in a relatively recent time frame. And you're right. Once somebody like Trump takes the initiative and uh, and decides to make mask wearing a political issue, then you have social media standing ready to amplify that message and make sure that that people get the idea. Ah, oh, okay. So wearing a MAGA hat is sort of the opposite of wearing a mask, and you 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 won't see anybody. I don't think I've ever seen anybody doing both. Uh, so I think that that's kind of how it works, and it it produced some crazy outcomes. So we can see, and I cite some of the data in in Doom that mainstream media and social media misinformation affected behavior. Uh, my favorite example of this is a Fox News example. Early in the pandemic, Sean Hannity downplayed the virus threat and essentially said it's the seasonal flu, what's the big deal? Tucker Carlson did the opposite. He said this China virus or the Wuhan flu is really serious. So these two anchors who have very uh, highly rated shows on Fox were saying opposite things. We can see that people who watched Hannity were more likely to get COVID than people who watched Carson last year. There's quite a big effect. So it's not just social media. It's actually mainstream media, cable news, that's doing a lot of the education or the opposite of education uh, last year. And this continues to be true. The biggest thing to stand in the way of getting rid of COVID in the United States is resistance to vaccination. We are not going to get, I think, to true herd immunity, particularly with new variants that are quite uh, contagious and, and reduce vaccine efficacy. If there's a solid percentage of people, if it's maybe 20% or maybe it gets down to 15, who just won't get vaccinated. And the reason they won't get vaccinated is that there's a historical resistance to vaccination in parts of the United States that goes back a long way, but the internet has supplied a ton of new propaganda on vaccination uh, in the last year or so. And I'm, I'm, I'm very sure that that is going to be one of the reasons that, that we have to keep playing whack-a-mole uh, with COVID because ultimately vaccination should not be a, a party political issue. It's crazy that it's conservatives and also African-Americans in the American South who are resistant to getting vaccinated. The conservatives, because of a more recent, I think, uh, Trumpist uh, suspicion of vaccination, though he himself did get vaccinated, uh, and the African-Americans because of a historic belief that, that and not unfounded belief that some uh, experiments and vaccination were carried out on on African-Americans. But they, these are the very people who most need to get vaccinated because conservatives tend to be older. African-Americans have a high risk from COVID. And so we, we kind of can see that there will probably be another wave of, of COVID, maybe maybe in the summer in the South, because it gets pretty hot there. And that, that's when everybody goes indoors. Maybe it won't be until the winter, but there'll be another wave. People will die because they believed BS about, about the vaccines. I would love to ask you kind of a more general point, something that I was thinking about recently. One of my friends um, sent me a series of pictures that he had seen on the dating app Tinder. And people had in their bios things like, if you uh, vote right, then swipe left, which I'm sure you're not familiar with, with the app Tinder, but that basically means, you know, swipe. I don't want anything to do with you type of thing. Uh, so as a historian, I would love to ask you, with what seems like there's this over-politicization of everything, are we more divided now than we've ever been before? Well, let me make clear that I never uh, have used a Tinder. I'm a happy married <laughs> man and um, no, we know where to begin with it. Shout out to Ayan. Just so that uh, we're all on the same page. But <laughs> it's actually an interesting point you make, that, that party politics seems to infest every aspects of, of life, uh, even uh, whom you'll date. And I think opinion polls show that uh, tolerance of the other party has declined significantly in the US. People are much more likely to say they'll disown their child if the child marries uh, someone of the wrong party than they were 20 or 30 years ago. I, I think on some bases that, that makes it hard to argue against the proposition that we've never been more divided. On the other hand, if one goes back a long way to before the time of opinion polls, it's pretty clear that Americans were more divided at the time of the Civil War than they are today. I mean, a lot of what goes on 
on social media is very vituperative and occasionally it spills over into real world violence. But by the standards of the 19th century, uh, it's pretty low level violence. I don't think the United States is going to end up in another civil war. In fact, I think in some ways, all the ranting and raving on Twitter is a substitute for most people for, for actual political conflict. And, and, you know, it's like, like kids playing violent video games. Uh, all my sons have done this. I'm still waiting for one of them to become a serial killer. It doesn't seem that likely. So I think there's a lot of kind of um, venting going on that really isn't that consequential. I also think that if you look back, you don't need to go all the way to the Civil War, to the time I'm writing about at the moment in the second volume of my biography of Henry Kissinger, the late 1960s and the early 1970s were a profoundly divisive, divided time in American history. And it wasn't just that people were venting, people were getting assassinated. Uh, think of uh, 1968, uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, if you look at the violence on campuses, as well as in, in the cities in the early 1970s, it's much worse than anything we see today. So I think we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that uh, outrage on social media reflects really profound division. I think we've actually been more dangerously divided, more violently divided in the past than we are now. And, and I would say if one looks at the UK, and I'm old enough uh, to, to do this, the divisions seem tame compared with the divisions of uh, the 70s and 80s, particularly, I think, back to the first Thatcher government, a time of, of strikes and um, a really intense atmosphere of, of political polarization in the country. Although Brexit seemed to create one of those really deep rifts that occasionally happen in British history, my sense, though I'm, I'm saying this from thousands of miles away, my sense is that those are not going to be very lasting divisions. Indeed, one can already see in the polling quite an interesting shift that's happened. If you had been a master strategist trying to work out how best to legitimize Brexit just at the moment when its costs were being felt, you couldn't have done better than the way the EU screwed up the early part of their vaccination uh, strategy. I mean, they're catching up now and it only really meant the loss of, of, of weeks, maybe months, but they made such a mess of it in just the way that, that critics of, of Europe have long characterized uh, the EU. It was bureaucratic, it was centralizing, but it also was incompetent. And so I, I sense that that apparently deep division in the UK is in some ways healing because in a funny kind of way, the events of 2020-21, particularly the events of this year, have sort of legitimized the case for Brexit in a way that to an old Remainer like me, and I was very much a Remainer in 2016, has been fascinating to watch. I mean, well done, Ursula von der Leyen. You, you really did the job there of confirming that the decision to leave was right. And I see people who were Remainers uh, in 2016 have kind of, I, I sense they've kind of thrown in the towel at this point. I would love to kind of ask you, because you are in the kind of academic sphere, We've had Gad, Gad Sad on the show. We've got Douglas Murray, Dave Rubin. Many of these guys have discussed with us that academia has become, for the most part, corrupted. Um, I saw on Twitter that uh, Eric Kaufman, the political professor from uh, Birkbeck College, he's been hounded by some militant students. Um, I can't comment on the... the um, corruption of academia as a whole but i would love to kind of get your thoughts on what role is kind of academia playing in this kind of division that we've discussed corruption is one word i'm not sure it's the best word to use to describe modern academia i would say the biggest problem is a skew a huge skew to the left 
that has made academic life more than it's ever been deeply unrepresentative of 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 a wider society the ratio of democrats to republicans amongst american professors is depending on which subject you're looking at somewhere between 14 to 1 to 17 to 1 to you know in anthropology you can't figure it out because there are no conservatives <laughs> so i think that that is a much more pronounced skew than was that was true in the in the 70s or 80s people say oh there's always been political correctness that that misses the point what has happened is that the academy has become a place in which progressive not just liberal but progressive thought is dominant and it's intolerant in the sense that there is no tolerance of of a dissenting view that means that unlike in the 1980s when i was an undergraduate right-leaning academics and students feel very inhibited about about speaking out and so there's less free speech on university campuses now than in 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 pubs that can't be a healthy thing when i was starting out in academic life part of the appeal of it was here were places where you could think the unthinkable and say the unsayable if you could back it up with with evidence these were places where you had arguments at the highest level and it was no hold bars intellectual combat if you had the data if you had the evidence uh, you could win the argument even if your position was uh, in some ways uh, a kind of unpalatable one 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 of the things that drew me to the united states was that it seemed to me that u.s economists were particularly willing to uh, engage in intellectual combat in this way, and that this was producing really terrific work. We've lost that in a relatively short space of time. In other words, in, in the space of less than 20 years, we've entered this era of wokeism in which if you step out of line and say something that causes any minority group to take offense, you risk being cancelled. You, you risk losing the, your job. At the very least, you'll suffer reputational damage. And that means that the majority of people um, who are rather uh, timorous, since cowardice is a very powerful force in history, say to themselves, well, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be out there like Brett Weinstein being flayed alive by his own university. And I, I don't want to be Eric Kaufman on the receiving end of absolutely disgusting Twitter attack by some group of woke students misrepresenting uh, things that he has said and done and, and trying to present him as some kind of racist. It's absolutely abhorrent to me that this kind of thing is done because, in fact, Eric Kaufman does excellent work, including a really, really good report that, that was published just a few months ago on precisely this problem that we're talking about. In fact, almost the best study of the, the problem of uh, academia today in the UK and the US and in Canada, where he's actually from originally. And so for making that kind of argument, for arguing that we have a problem of free speech, people feel uh, that they have to self-censor, he becomes the target for just the kind of social media hit that is designed to intimidate people into silence. I thought that tw Twitter thread was disgusting. And I, I think the people who, uh, who published it should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. Those are the people who are the enemies of free speech and free inquiry. And it's their behavior that is making academia such an intolerable place, an intolerant place. And if, if the Birkbeck authorities pay any heed at all uh, to the attack on Kaufman, they will be doing themselves as well as him, a great, great disservice. Unfortunately, all too often in these cases, the attacks are taken uh, seriously by university administrators, uh, even when they come from uh, a small number of, of politically motivated individuals. And all too often, uh, the administrations engage in uh, highly questionable inquiries and investigations, which usually are entirely without due process that then put uh, the academic in question 
into a kind of at best naughty corner and and at, and at worst into some kind of uh, disciplinary process so this better not happen at Birkbeck if it does uh, I will certainly join I'm sure a great many people who will speak out uh, strongly against uh, against it and in favor of of, uh, of Kaufman appreciate we're running out of time so I just want to fire through some quick fire questions sure. um, in the book, you say at the end um, that you don't get the disaster that you prepared for, or you mostly don't get the disaster that you prepared for. So when you're looking at the world now, it seems like the disaster that we are preparing for is climate change. Um, I think it's you know well warranted to, to protect the planet and whatnot. Um, recently, I finished reading another excellent book, The Precipice by Toby Ord. Um, in the book, Ord says that the odds of the existential catastrophe caused by climate change in the next 100 years is one in a thousand. Uh, but however, he says that the odds of dying via unaligned AI is one in 10 and the total odds of existential collapse in the next 100 years via non-natural means is one in six. What do you think will be the next existential threat that we face? If I knew that, uh, then I would have an advantage over everyone in history because uh, throughout history, we've been failing to, to answer that question correctly. And the truth is we can't answer it. We cannot know what the next disaster will be by definition. They are not predictable. Can't attach probabilities to them even. I don't know. It could be an earthquake uh, here in California that that is my next disaster. It wouldn't affect you, but it would affect a large part of uh, of the United States, but we don't know. It could be a cyber attack that disables uh, the uh, critical infrastructure of the United States. I'm sure the Chinese and the Russians have a plan for that. And, and I could go on. I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that we don't think about at all that could strike. Uh, and we just can't know. Does the Yellowstone supervolcano suddenly erupt? Uh, that would certainly be a game changer. We'd be talking about global cooling for the rest of our lives. And that, that might be a relatively short duration. Uh, what if there's a sudden change in solar activity uh, and you find yourself uh, uh, dealing with the massive power outages caused uh, by a coronal mass ejection? I could go on. And so between man-made, uh, Toby Ord's uh, disasters and natural disasters that we've kind of forgotten about, there's, there's a whole lot that can be disastrous. I don't know that one in six is a terribly meaningful probability for the end of it all between now and and uh, and the next hundred years. I do think it's it's in my view better to say that there will be another large disaster at some point in the next ten years, and we don't know what form it will take. Uh, that that seems like a kind of more reasonable proposition. It won't kill everybody, but it could kill a lot of people. And are we really ready for that? I think the answer is almost certainly no. Even although we, we might think we are, we might have a pandemic preparedness plan or an earthquake preparedness plan or even a you know, mass internet outage preparedness plan. But, but I doubt very much if those plans have been in any way tested. I mean, there are no drills. There's no drill for an earthquake in California. I've been here four and a half years. At no point has there been a, a, a drill. Not in my neighborhood, not, not in my workplace, not in my neighborhood. So I think that's the problem that we don't know what the next disaster will be, but it doesn't really matter. Whatever it is, we'll turn out to be woefully ill-prepared, even if we think we're prepared. Today, we were discussing your latest book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Um, we always end our podcasts uh, kind of antithetically to Doom, I guess, which is I always ask the question, what makes a life worth living? I, I think uh, the answer to that, for most people, and I, I stress most people, uh, is their children and grandchildren. They're very, very motivated as a species by our immediate offspring and, and their welfare, their flourishing. Of course, not everybody has children. And not every family is happy, but that's a very big part of, of the answer. And it certainly is for me. Beyond that, 
I think one cannot really feel that life is worth living until one has a meaningful connection to both the dead, the past, and the unborn, the future generations we will never meet. This was Edmund Burke's great insight and reflections on the revolution in France, that the real social contract has been between the living, the dead, and the unborn. A culture that does not make you feel an intense connection to both the dead and the unborn is a culture that fundamentally undervalues humanity. We as, our, 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 as individuals are we're like mayflies. We have a relatively short lifespan in the great scheme of things. That life cannot be meaningful if it is entirely focused on our own gratification, our own accumulation of wealth or whatever it is. And even if all we do is, is look after ourselves and our kids, that's not enough. It's, it's about the people we don't know, don't meet, the dead and the unborn. And history, the study of history is, is one way that I find I can best commune, not only with those vanished generations, the great majority of human beings are dead after all, whoever lived. It's only about 7% who are currently alive. But also history gives one a sense of, of what posterity might possibly think about us. I mean, who in a hundred years will be writing the history? I don't know, maybe there'll be no history, but if there is history to be written in a hundred years or 200 years or 300 years, it's important for us to ask ourselves right now, what will they say? And are we acting in a way that will get us good or bad press when those future histories come to be written? Where can these guys connect with you? And do you have any closing messages? <laughs> you can connect with me by buying Doom or any of my other 16 books. Uh, you can follow me on social media if that's your thing. I, I'm on Twitter at, an, at nfergus. I have a website, neilferguson.com, where all my journalism can be found uh, going back quite a few years, if you feel like searching through the, the great accumulation of verbiage. And uh, other than that, uh, I think you'd have to come over here to Stanford and, uh, you know, check out my, uh, my office hours to, to connect with me. But I think that's, that's plenty to be going along, uh, going along with. And the closing uh, message, insofar as I can think of one, uh, comes from the uh, Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. Uh, I was in that museum many years ago as a, junior fellow, I just got a job at Cambridge and I came across this extraordinary painting uh, by an Italian artist, uh, which is a kind of memento mori, uh, a reminder of death. He painted it after he'd lost almost his entire family to an outbreak of plague in Naples. His name was Salvatore Rosa. And the inscription on this painting stuck in my mind. Uh, it goes like this, Conceptio culpa, Narski Pena, Labor Vita, Nekesi Mori, which translates as conception is uh, sin, uh, pain, uh, birth is pain, life is work, and death is inevitable. And that's all you need to know. If that's not a mic drop moment, I don't know what is. <laughs> Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure. It's been my pleasure.